Hey everybody, this is Keith Loy. I'm the founding senior pastor of Celebrate Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and this is our podcast. I just want to say thank you for joining us, and it is my prayer that this week's message will truly encourage you. Enjoy. I want to welcome you to The Real McCoy, and if you're a guest, truly, we're glad that you're here. Amen to that, church? We're so glad that you're here, and what we're doing is we're walking through seven key areas of our lives. Seven key areas that if we would really take them serious and really understand what it means to be healthy in these areas, we would be the real McCoy. And I think our world's looking for people who are real, authentic. That doesn't mean they have to be perfect, but they're seeking the one who is. Amen to that? And so we're talking about seven areas. We began last week talking about our spiritual health. Understanding that really, and I don't say it to be negative, I'm just telling what the scriptures say, that there's really nothing good in us unless that something is Jesus. Paul said it. You can read it in Romans 7. There's nothing good in us of our flesh. If there's anything good, it's only Christ. Jesus himself said that you and I, apart from him, can do nothing. Solomon writes... That there's a way that seems right to a man, the end is always death. And so we have to understand. So we, we looked at the prodigal story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And we began to look at is what does it mean to get spiritually right with God? Well, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to get fed up with ourselves. We've got to truly, if you will, come to a place to understand there's nothing good in us. And we need to admit that. But I think too often, we think there is. We think we know best. We think we have some good ideas. And so it's easier, if you will, to get running without God than it is to walk with God. But we've got to get fed up in our lives and realize we need Jesus. And then we can't blame others for our sin. Your sin didn't separate me from Christ. My sin did. And I've got to own up to it. But I said last week, I think our number one problem is... When it comes to the story of the prodigal son is I think we do get fed up. I think we do realize, man, God, I have sinned. But then we stay where we're at. We need to get up. We need to make a movement, if you will. We need to step back towards God to stay where you're at and then say, well, God will meet me where I'm at. Is for you to dictate God what he needs to do. Like, God, I'm here. You need to meet me here. And God's like, you kidding me? You're in the pig bin. We need to get up. And in the story, the prodigal gets up and he starts back home. And that's when the father met him. Folks, we don't tell God where to meet us. The Bible says we're to seek him and all these things will be added. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to begin, if you will, looking at the second area of our lives. But if I was to share with you all seven weeks, as we look at our spiritual health, we need to talk about our physical health. We're going to talk about our mental health our emotional health, our relational health, our financial health, and then our vocational health. All seven areas matter to God. And if we would learn to get healthy in each one of these areas, to get fed up where we're at, to own up our part of the story, and then get up in these areas, God will begin to do a work like never before. And now we're going to talk about our physical health. I want to read an excerpt from Chuck Swindoll's book, Stress Fracture. Here's what he writes. Whoever dubbed our times the Aspern Age 
didn't miss it far. It's a correct assumption, for there has never been a more stress-ridden society than ours. For many, gone are the days of enjoying a bubbling brook, walking along a windy pathway, or taking a long stroll near a beach. The relaxed bike ride through the local park has now been replaced with the roar of a motorcycle whipping through busy traffic. The easy-come, easy-go lifestyle of the farm has been preempted by a hectic urban family going in six different directions, existing on instant dinners, shouting matches, strained relationships, too little sleep, and way too much television. Then add financial setbacks, failure at school, unanswered letters, obesity, loneliness, a ringing phone, unplanned pregnancies, fear of cancer, misunderstandings, materialism, alcoholism, drugs, and an occasional death, and then subtract the support of the family unit, divided by dozens of opinions, multiplied by 365 days a year, and you have the making of madness. Stress has become a way of life. It's the rule rather than the exception. In fact, psychologists tell us that stress is the most urgent problem of our time, and anxiety has now become the official emotion of our day. And he's like, you kidding me? But it doesn't take long to just listen to how people talk. Somehow it's a badge of honor, isn't it? I'm so busy. I got so much to do. And we're like, proud of that? Like, really, that's what's going on. And yet, David writes in Psalm 119, trouble and anguish have taken hold of me. Anybody ever feel that way? Well, according to a recent study, over 80% of Americans feel that way. Over 80%. And yet somehow we think busyness is like cool. We're like being stressed out is like, wow, look at me. Over 80% of people feel this way. You know, I read about a man who was so stressed, so deep in despair, he climbed up on the Brooklyn Bridge and was about to leap. When a policeman drew him back, but the man protested, sir, you don't understand. I've been running. I'm miserable. I'm hopeless. Please let me jump. The kind-hearted officer said, tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You take five minutes and you tell me why life is not worth living. And then you've got to give me five minutes and I'm going to tell you why it is. If at the end of 10 minutes, you still feel the same need to jump, I won't stop you. So the man took his five minutes and told the officer how bad life is. And then the officer took his five minutes. And as the result was, at the end of 10 minutes, they joined hands and both jumped. <laughs> you ever feel that way? <laughs> Welcome to my world. Listen to this. Every week, this is crazy. Every week in this country, 112 million people take medication for a stress-related symptom. Every week, 112 million people. Y'all know what medic medicine is in a lot of ways? For a lot of people, it's to numb the pain so they can keep doing what they're doing. It's interesting, isn't it? How stressed we are. How hard we're running. And somehow we think we have so much to do. And this might hurt a little. No one in this room has anything to do. That would matter more 
than being with God. And yet the number one reason why so many people don't spend time in the Word is not because they don't understand it. They don't have time for it. It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? But we got a problem, people, right here in River City. Y'all seen the music, man? Like, am I alone in this one? <laughs> Trouble with a capital T that rhymes with P and stands for stress. I know some of you are going, okay, stress doesn't start with P. It's my sermon, it's not yours. Folks, life is a pressure cooker. Wouldn't you agree? And everywhere we turn, someone keeps turning the heat up. Something's got to change. So if you got your notes, I want to share with you seven common sources of our stress. Where is it coming from? We need to identify it so we can figure out the solution. But here's the first. How about worry? Oh, my goodness. I'm going to say it is number one. You know why? Because I believe there's more to worry about than we did 20 years ago. What our younger generation is dealing with is crazy. Think about it. 20 years ago, we didn't worry about identity theft. Wasn't even a thought. Now we have commercials trying to sell us software to somehow stop it. And maybe you've already been a victim of it. 20 years ago, we didn't worry about losing our cell phone. 20 years ago, it was a bag the size of a backpack. And if you lost it, you needed to lose it. You know what I'm talking about? You remember that thing? Oh my goodness. We had to hold it outside the car while we're standing on the car while we had to drive up on a cliff and it still didn't work. It's crazy. 20 years ago, I never went into the airport feeling like I had to strip down 20 years ago, I really wasn't worried about someone walking into a school and pulling a gun either. It seems we got a lot to worry about in a rapid, growing, very complex world. How about hurry? <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying, okay? How about hurry? Folks, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. And it knows it must outrun the fastest line or it'll be killed Every morning in Africa, a lion wakes up and knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it'll starve. So whether you're a lion or a gazelle, when the sun comes up, you better be running. And I think that's the story of our lives, isn't it? It's like we're running a sprint. The alarm clock becomes a gun, and when it sounds, man, we're just running. We live in a microwave world where everybody wants it now, and the result is stress. In fact, you might want to write this down. Speed creates stress. Speed creates stress. And we're running faster than we should. How about this one? Urbanize, dear Lord, I'm getting stressed trying to say it. Okay. Urbanize, anyway. Let me explain what it is. I don't care. Keep it to yourself. Did you know... Did you know that 3 million people move to the city in America every week? That's what this is. People are running to the city. 
In fact, 83% of Americans now live in the city. And in the next 15, 20 years, two-thirds of the world will. And bigger cities mean more traffic, more violence, more disease. Anytime you get people together without Jesus, you got problems. See, that's why I don't think we get the translation where Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be in their midst. You know, you know what I'm talking about? I think what he was saying is anytime two or three get together, you need me in your midst. All right? But that's what's happening in our world. Last year, in our 75 largest cities combined, they recorded over 4 billion hours wasted setting in traffic and over 6 billion gallons of gasoline burned up sitting there. In the 1800s, there was only one city in the world that was over 1 million. Does anyone know what that city was? London. Today, we now have over 500 cities, and now we have what they call mega cities. Tokyo, Japan, 36 million people. Mexico City, Mexico, 35 million people. Hurley, South Dakota, 23 people. <laughs> I, I want to be mayor of the city just to put up a stoplight. You know, I just be curious. How about multiple choices? I read about a guy who went to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist asked him, are you indecisive? He says, well, yes, no. What do you mean by that? Well, I used to be, but now I'm not sure. You say, what am I getting at? Well, William James says the most miserable people in the world are the people who are habitually indecisive. And that's the world we're becoming. And people are now paralyzed in indecision. You used to go to fast food. Are you like kidding me? Anybody been to McDonald's lately? Over lunch? Ain't nothing fast about that. You used to get in line, it was a burger with cheese and a burger without. My goodness, there's a hundred ways you get your McNuggets now. It's nuts. And then you go to Starbucks. It's coffee. You want to kill the person in front of you who's ordering for the whole office. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll have a venti latte a little whip, shot of espresso. For, no, no, scratch that. Make it a grande. Whatever happened to small, medium, and large? <laughs> I, I get corrected. Like, I'll have a large. Is that a venti? Is that a large? <laughs> But all these choices. And we're now moving into more of indecision, which creates stress. How about loss of privacy? Today you go into a store and the first thing they ask you at the register is what? Can I have your phone number and email address? Why? <laughs> Will it pay for it? <laughs> I just want to give you my money, man. <laughs> But then there's talk now, and I don't think it's so true. I don't know, but it's created a wave that somehow when a child's born, they want to put a chip in them. Yeah. 
And you're like, you're kidding me. The things that they know that I'm not sure they should know. How about pluralism? 100 years ago, America was pretty much what they call a homogeneous place. Do you know what that means? It means we held common values and beliefs, but that's no longer true today. Technology has shrunk the globe, and thus we now live in a melting pot of ideas. And even the people who live next door may have very different beliefs, convictions, and lifestyles. Which means incivility starts to rise. By the way, on technology, there were three dudes walking. Talk about the unbelievable things they can do. And they heard a phone ring. And one of the guys goes, uh-huh. Yeah, you let me call you later. And their dudes are like, what was that? Well, man, I had these chips put right here in my hand. I, my phone is in my hand now. They're like, oh, my goodness. They start walking. A phone rings again. Another guy goes, yeah, mm-hmm, okay, all right. Like, what was that? He said, I have those same chips, but I put them in my neck. It's like, awesome. Like, You're kidding me. They start walking again. The third guy stops and goes, um, they go, what's that? And he says, I have a fax coming through. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came? This is precisely why we keep rolls and rolls of toilet paper in our bathroom. <laughs> but, but how about this one? The fear of the future. If you're part of my generation and older, you've probably had these thoughts or even expressed them, a concern about parents now raising kids in this generation. There's an unbelievable fear when we start thinking about what we're dealing with. And all of that stuff creates stress. These things are coming at us in so many ways. And so how do we learn to be healthy? How do we learn to become the real McCoy in our physical lives? Well, if you got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to Psalm, to the Psalms. If you're not familiar with your Bible, just start combing through it. When you get about in the middle section, you're going to get to the largest book of the Bible. And I'm going to invite you to go to Psalm 23. The most popular of all the psalm. And very few people, very few, understand it's God's antidote. The incredible beauty of what David wrote. The words are so impregnated with amazing truth that God helps us that how we can be the real McCoy, how we can be healthy in a world that's running out of control. And so I'm going to read all six verses, but I want to say this before I read them, is that God will never run with us. Let me just say it again. And so you don't miss what I just said. God will never run with us when he's commanded us to walk with him. God already knows what our pace will lead to. God already knows what our ideas will accomplish. And we're never going to be the real McCoy if we think that God's going to run with us. He calls us to walk with him. And there's some things that we've got to learn, but he doesn't give them to us as an option. 
He writes them because he really, truly loves us and cares. And so here we are, Psalm 23. And I'm going to read all six verses. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, I'm asking for a supernatural work of your spirit. God, that your word is what goes forth, that nothing that comes out of my lips are of me. So Lord, speak. I trust that everybody right now would say, I'm listening. And God, transform us in the likeness of who you are, especially in a wave of a world that seems to be going so contrary to you. We need your power. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you got your notes, I want to look at a few of these verses, and I want to help you as the antidote to those seven things that I just listed that cause stress. God gives us an answer. God gives us incredible hope. And here's the first. If we're going to be the real McCoy, we must first look to God to meet all our needs. Say it with me. Look to God to meet all our needs. Say it again, own it, church. Look to God to meet all our needs. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your work, not your stuff. David just said, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. My Bible says he's a good shepherd. No one knows his sheep better than he. But here's the deal. He can't meet all your needs if he's not your shepherd. But I will share with you, he can meet all your needs. You can read in Matthew where Jesus says, why do you worry? Why do you worry about what you shall eat? Why do you worry about what you wear? I don't get it. Why? Look at the birds of the air. I feed them. Look at the flowers in the fields. I clothe them. How much more, how much more valuable are you than they? My Bible says, be anxious of nothing, but take all of those things and cast them on God because he cares for you. We need to get serious about getting fed up and owning up, but then we got to get up and get back to what David writes the Lord is my shepherd, I have all I need. Paul writes in Romans 8, look at it. Since God did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us, won't he also surely give us everything else we need? And the answer is absolutely. That's why David said, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God for everything. Because that's the kind of God he is. Think about it this way. If God loved you enough to send his son to die on a cross, don't you think he loves you enough to take care of everything you need? 
Oh my goodness, church. He didn't die to leave us high and dry. He died to give us life and life to the full. And life to the full is here, not out here. Amen, church? So every time you feel stressed, every time you start to worry, every time you feel a little bit out of balance, you know what I think we need to learn to say to ourselves? The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Just say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Everything I need. Here's number two. If we're going to be the real McCoy, when it comes to our physical lives, we have to obey God's word about rest. Say that with me. We have to obey God's word about rest. We have to obey it. God didn't write it as a suggestion. Because if we're truly honest with ourselves, almost all of our stress comes because we're running. We're always on the go. I got so much to do. God's going, really? You, you have more to do than me? You know the adage, all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy? I'm telling you what, all work, no play means Jack's dead. Okay? I mean, that's all there is to it. It means Jack don't know Jack. I mean, that's what that says to me. You, you remember going to the mall and they have that giant funnel? You know, and you put the quarter in, you slide in, it goes... Mm, it's funny, we're so busy, but we watch it. <laughs> I just love it. But can I help you? It's such a picture of life. 1960s. Mm, 1970s. Mm, 1980s. Mm, 1990s. Mm, 2000. <laughs> See, I think we ought to, I think our locks on our bedroom door, that they first get tripped when you put the quarter in. And they don't unlock until the quarter hits the bottom. I think it would really help us start our day. Because so many of us, when our feet hit the ground, man, we're hauling. Always in a rush. On and on we go. And yet the Bible is filled with instruction on the importance of R&R. &R. In fact, it's listed by God among the Ten Commandments. Right up there with, thou shall not murder and thou shall not commit adultery. Keep the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath day. Jesus even said the Sabbath wasn't made for man. Or it was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you know what he's saying? You've taken six days of my creation and used them for yourself. Don't you use the Sabbath for you either. It's my day. You keep running out there. Let's stop. And by the way, the Sabbath was created by God before sin entered the world. I just remind you that. Sin didn't change it. The Bible says that God created six days and then he rested. And if God rested, don't you think we need to rest? Church, we need to learn this. So David writes, he makes me lie down. Notice the words, he makes me, as if obviously we're not smart enough to do that ourselves. So write this down. My best requires rest. My best requires rest. Believe it or not, I'm not wasting time when I'm relaxing in God. It's been said, better to have loafed and lost than to never have loafed at all. <laughs> okay, it doesn't say that, but I like it. It's funny. All right, look at, look at Exodus 34. 
Six days, this is in the Bible, six days are set aside for your work. But every seventh day, you must rest what? Come on, you must rest what? Completely. Now watch this. Even during your seasons of plowing and harvest, you must observe a Sabbath day of rest. You say, what does that say? Even during the Christmas rush and you own a store and it's most of your business, you must observe a Sabbath day of rest. Even if you're an accountant and you're in the heart of tax season, you must observe a Sabbath day of rest. Your busyness never justifies the importance of being with me. That's what God says. I heard about a guy who said to his pastor, Pastor, I tried to get a hold of you all day Monday. Pastor said, well, I'm sorry, it's my day off. Man said, well, the devil never takes a day off. I love what the pastor said. Yeah, and if I didn't take a day off, I'd be just like the devil. It's interesting to me how many followers of Christ say they're followers of Christ, but they live their lives according to the devil. God will never run with us when he's called us to walk with him. Busyness is more like the devil than it is Christ, people. And it's time that we have to get back to obeying God's word about rest. Here's number three. I will trust God in my darkness. Say that with me. I will trust God in my darkness. Look at verse four. Even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for that is the true translation. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. First of all, I want you to note the first two words, even though. You know what that means? You will. And multiple times, this side of heaven, we're going to go through dark times. But now listen, when we go through darkness, we're going to experience one of two things. You know what they are? Fear or grief. Now, grief is a good thing. Fear is not. When we go through loss, when we go through darkness, when we go through those kind of moments in life, the Bible tells us to weep. The Bible tells us to grieve. The Bible says to cry. But when it comes to fear, the Bible says, fear not. 365 times in the Bible, one for every day. Why would we fear anyway? You see, some of you right now are going through the shadow of darkness. Some of you are going through the valley of the shadow of death. Some of you are going through the valley of the shadow of debt. Some of you are going through the valley of the shadow of conflict. Some of you are going through the valley of the shadow of disappointment. Some of you are going through the shadow of, if you will, the valley of the shadow of, dis, of discouragement. But I want you to notice something. It's only a shadow. It's not real. See, allow me to offer a few things why the Bible says it's a shadow. Because... Shadows are only cast. They're not the real McCoy. A shadow can't hurt you. If you're walking down the road and a truck hits you, that's going to hurt, but not the shadow of the truck going by. A shadow will sometimes appear bigger than its source, but it's not the source, which is important to understand what David is writing here. Because fear always appears greater than it is, but it's only a shadow of something else. So let me give you a little secret. Whenever there's a shadow, look for the light source 
So when you're going through the valley of the shadow of, you understand that light is where it's coming from, not the shadow of what it is. See, this is why we can trust God in the darkness, because it's the one who casts the shadow that matters, not the shadow. See, I don't think people understand this. Satan is darkness, which means he can't create a shadow. Even Satan needs God's light to create a shadow. So that's why he creates shadows and make things bigger, because he wants to get your perception skewed from the light and see what he's doing. So when you're going through something, we let God be our source of strength. We put our trust in God because I'm not going to fear the darkness because there's always the light source and the light is always bigger than the darkness. Amen. Amen. Church, this is important. You catch this. And so I will trust my God in the darkness. By the way, you might want to write this down. I don't have to know the answers when I know my God does. Here's number four. I allow God to be my defender. Say that with me. I allow God to be my defender. Has anybody figured out that there's always a critic in your life? You know what I'm talking about? There's always somebody who's negative. Listen, if you don't have one, I've got several I'll give you, okay? I'll pass them around. I'll share the joy. I'm just telling you, there's always people. Have anybody ever noticed that? And I don't know about you, but when people start to get negative and they start becoming critical, I, my natural bent is just want to punch them. I know some of you are going, I can't believe my pastor actually has those thoughts. Oh, I have those thoughts. I've wanted to hit a lot of you. Okay, I'm just... I, and you go, well, that's just wrong. No, it is not. That's why the Bible says take every thought captive. The thought isn't the sin. It's when you start playing with the thought. It's when you act on the thought. Folks, it's hard for me when I'm watching a football game and they put something up on the screen that I really don't want to have my eyes rested on. Listen, the glance isn't the sin, it's the gaze that becomes the problem. See, I just don't hit anyone because I take the thought captive and know that's wrong. And some of you need to learn that as well and then let God be the defender. Folks, listen, Winston Churchill, I, I like the dude. Winston was one of those dudes that had a tendency to react. He had a gal in his life called Lady Astor and she did not like him. I mean, she could not stand him. And one time she walks up and says, Mr. Churchill, you're drunk. He goes, yes, I am, ma'am, but you're ugly. <laughs> no kidding, true story. He says, tomorrow morning when I wake up, my problem will be over. <laughs> She got mad at him one time and said, Mr. Churchill, if I was married to you, I'd poison your coffee. He said, ma'am, if I was married to you, I'd drink it. <laughs> and, I mean, see, we have a tendency to want to do that, don't we? But now watch this. We're no different than the critic. All we did was even the playing field and we handled it wrong. You need to hear this very carefully. Negative people, negative people are only revealing the littleness of their heart. When someone's critical of you, they're not saying anything about you. They're telling everybody about them. You might want to write this down. Little people belittle people. Little people belittle people. 
But big people make you feel bigger when you're around them. So how do we handle the critics and the negative people? We allow God to be our defender. That's why David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. Do you know what he's saying? Here's Here's what David's saying. When people are critical, God says, you come sit at the table with me. But not only are you going to sit in the table, I want them to know your royalty. See, the only people that had their heads anointed were of the royal family. And what David's saying is in the front of all the critics, my God says, you come eat with me and I'm going to let them know I'll take care of it. You're my child. Don't mess with my children. I love these words. I love these words. Folks, it takes a lot of faith to trust when you're under attack. It takes a lot of faith to not retaliate. It takes a lot of faith to not go on social media and be a coward about it. Nothing hurts my heart more when Christians go to social media. And I know they're in sin when they do that because God called us to take them in private and talk them in the faith for the sake of unity, not division. Takes a lot of faith, church, to do that. But when we do that, we're like Jesus, who when Pilate was critical of him, Jesus said not a word. That's why Jesus said, blessed are you when men shall revile you and and persecute you and say all manners of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. I'm going to invite the team to the stage. Here's the last one. I expect God to finish what he began in me. Say that with me. I expect God to finish what he began in me. Look at verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you know what he's saying here? When I start looking to the future, I can, I can act one or two ways. I can go, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? What about the next generation? What if this happens? What if this goes down? What if this goes wrong? You can spend the whole world in what if. Do you know what what if will do? It will always paralyze you. Or you can get up every morning and you understand on the rise and it doesn't look real good, but you say these words, surely good and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But look how bad things are. I understand, but surely goodness and mercy are following me, man. And I'm going to be in the house of the Lord forever. Because whatever's going on, it's temporary with me. I'm a child of the king. My name is written in the book of life. See, David understood that. That God is the author. He's the finisher. He's the one writing the story in my life. I said something last week, and I'm not sure anybody heard it. I'm I'm not saying you may have. It just didn't seem like it. But I made the statement, why would we ever give Satan the pen to write in our story? When God is writing the story in Keith Lloyd, and he will finish it, despite even the stumbles I make. Because my Bible says, even those stumbles can become an incredible part of the story because he can take all things and work them for the good. That's good news, people. All Satan can do is read my story and weep. Remember that when we used to tell people, read it and weep. 
we'd lay our hand down. That's the way we need to live our lives. You play your cards every day. Satan, read them and weep. That's all he can do. Because the Bible says he's the author and the finisher. And because he's the finisher, surely goodness and mercy are following me every day of my life. I may not get it in the moment, but I'm going to be in the house of the Lord forever. See, that's confidence. I'm going to expect my God to finish what he began because he never reneges on a promise. I say it often, starters are a dime a dozen, but finishers are one in a million. I want to be a one in a million church. I want to be a people that finish the race because God is the finisher. He does what he said he's going to do. And that's confidence. That's good news, people. See, some of you are going to probably have to stay in the far country. I don't say that as a, to be a Debbie Downer. That's just a reality. Some of you in this room. I got a lot to do, Pastor. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning. You're just going to run. And remember this. Anytime we're running to something, we're running from something. Always remember that. See, I'm running to Jesus. I'm running away from my past. Does that make sense? Some of you are going to get up and go running for the world again, but you're going to be running away from God. That's why God's not going to meet you where you're at. Because there's no hope in the pig pen. Some of you need to get fed up with the pace you've been running and say, I can't do this anymore. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to accomplish anything good in and of myself. I can only accomplish anything that's good that has eternity on it. That's going to require God to be right in the center of it. You got to quit blaming everybody else and stop and go, no. No, no, no. I'm... I'm it's my fault. But then you get up and you take a step and you say, God, I'm coming home. I'm not going to run the world's pace. I'm going to run your race. And that race doesn't need to be run because it's already done. I'm just going to walk with God. See, church, that's what it's about. Who in this room? No, you need to become the real McCoy. And some things got to change. Every week, I'm going to open up the altar. And I'm going to do it because it's going to make a few people uncomfortable. Some of you are going, nah, I don't need, I, God will meet me where I'm at. You don't tell God where he's going to meet you. Think about that. You don't tell God. That's the problem. We're always telling God as if somehow he needs our help. I want to seek him. Because my Bible says when I seek him with all my heart, I will find him. When I seek him, all these things will be taken care of. And that's what I'm doing in my life. Just slowing down, slowing down, slowing down, slowing down. Just wanting to get healthy. I don't want to keep stressing over the things that don't matter. There's more joy in the fact of loving on my kids and trying to correct them the way I think they need to go. It's true. I find real joy when they call and I get to FaceTime with them. It's one thing I like about technology. And my little daughter, Jaden's probably watching right now. Hi, baby. She's 36 hours away. And she watches, and then afterwards, 
And even in the service, you'll probably see me down here checking my phone because she'll write and go, watching daddy. I just love that. She'll call multiple times today. I think that's cool. It's fun. And we just talk. Talk about everything. I mean, that pace to me is more important than anything else. And so as the team sings, I'm going to invite you to stand. The altar's open. Let me pray. Father, oh my goodness, I know I can't, I can't change a life, and I'm sure not going to judge that life. I just want to keep loving that life. But God, I can only look in the mirror at myself and realize it's time to get healthy to be the real McCoy. In the areas of the physicalness, I've stressed and worried about way too many things. And God, I repent that. That was my choosing. That's my pace. And God, it's time to come home. 